Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. The Media Project is a half-hour commentary and analysis by some veteran journalists and observers, giving us a chance to second-guess those who are really actively involved in the process. So you mean we've got a bunch of old people in here? <laughs> I was trying to be gentle yeah, about this, yeah. Ira. <laughs> I don't want to trip over my cane. <laughs> I'm Rex Smith. That's Ira Fussfeld, a longtime publisher, a former publisher of the Daily Freeman in Kingston, New York, and affiliated publications. And, of course, Alan Shartok is here, the CEO of Northeast Public Public Radio. And uh, Barbara Lombardo, former executive editor of the Troy and Saratoga Springs papers. So, you know, we have a lot of miles under the belt here. Who are you? I used to be the editor of the Times Union. I was a political writer on Long Island. I had a career. And now I just sit here and talk to you guys. So did I, but you wouldn't know it from my introduction. (laughs) People ought to read your column on Substack. I've been reading it every Saturday. It's quite good. Thank you, Ira. www.upstateamerican.com is how you would find it. Upstate American. That's very kind of you to notice. I really love still having a voice and being able to write about things that are going on, sort of a perspective from someplace apart from the center of things, which is where we are here. But this brings up the point that I think we ought to start with. Alan, tell mm. me. Here, we know some things about you, Alan, because mm. we uh, hear of you uh, every I talk day. about myself a lot is what you're trying to say. <laughs> We're getting right to the heart of things here these days. You pay a lot of attention to the news. You are addicted to it. You get up in the middle of the night and read the news. There are a lot of people who have been talking to me these days about their conflicted feelings about this, about trying to avoid the news. There is so much bad news that they say, it does nothing but upset me. I've got to stay away from it. You think there's something valid to that? Well, yes, and I think there's a psychological aspect to it, too. In other words, when we had a recent election, if you were a Democrat and the news was coming over, that you were within a hair's breadth in New Jersey, of all places, or you were losing in Virginia if you were a Democrat. You don't like the news. You like the news when it is confirming your views. I think we know that. And so I think right now there are an awful lot of Democrats who are very unhappy and who are avoiding reading what's happening to them, although they ought to, because if they're going to solve their problems, the only way they can do that, Ira, you don't look happy, um, (laughs) the only way they can do that is to understand what just happened. I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I think the issue of people avoiding the news is because so much of the news is about conflict, and I don't mean conflict among those that the news is covering, but among conflicts that the news programs are setting up so that you turn on the TV or the radio or to a different extent read newspapers and all you see is people fighting with each other and I'm just tired of it I'm retired but I'm still a news person I still read news I still watch news it drives me crazy and to the point where I don't want to watch anymore because I'm tired of them fighting with each other Barbara do you get this yeah Barbara yes anecdotally I would agree with that and I think that it goes back further than just the recent conflicts I think that a lot of us were following or a lot of people were following so much news during the Trump administration day in and day out it became exhausting and then when we thought we had a normal presidency normal administration we could step back and not follow the news so much and then trying to get back into it again 
is just I think too there's much. something to that. You know, we've seen ratings drop off significantly. Actually, Rachel Maddow has half the audience she had at some points during the peak of the Trump administration because there has been a lot of that. And it does seem to me that some of what we saw in the Trump term was, for lack of a better term, political porn. It was, for people who are somewhat political junkies or news junkies, there was so much stuff that was so mind-blowing that you had to follow it, but it made you cringe and it made you crazy. And the problem is, I'm just wondering how journalism gets around this, because we know that anger motivates people. Anger Mm. motivates voters. Anger Mm. motivates people to watch. How do you get away from conflict? And I would add to that, Rex, if I may, because I don't like to add anything to your glorious words, is that Donald Trump was leading the horse. I mean, I don't think there's any question that with the basic disappearance of Trump, you find that things have changed significantly. For example, Republicans who might not have won if Trump was leading the charge, all of a sudden are doing quite well. So there, there is that. But to Rex's point about Rachel Maddow's ratings. Who cares we, about Rex's point? What <laughs> <laughs> was it anyway? The, <laughs> well, the, uh, Rachel Maddow's ratings may be way down, but Fox News's ratings were way down when Obama was president, and now Rachel Maddow's mm. are down when there's a Democratic president. And people want to hear the complaints. You'll turn into Fox News to hear how bad Biden is. So MSNBC, the people are not as motivated to turn on that channel because they're not fighting with them. They're agreeing with them. Am I enunciating that right? Yes, and I think there is something to this. Greg Sargent, who's a columnist at The Washington Post, said that in particular the Virginia race, which was won by a Republican, said that he has benefited from a right-wing media network that helped him pump quote, raw right-wing sewage directly into the minds of the GOP base while he hourly projected a sunny message. Here's what Sargent wrote. If Democrats lose, and there will be many causes that will all require introspection, but one focus should be this communications imbalance. The dark truth is it's gotten worse, and as Virginia shows, it's helping put Democratic gains in real peril. Raw right-wing sewage. Uh, You try to say that. And this is part of the problem. The right's home base, Fox News, has figured out a way to keep the election going year-round and to keep focusing on social issues to drive its agenda because it's not as respectful of real facts and real stories. So you got any examples of that, Rexy? In other words, substantive positioning on the part of Ivermectin, for example. You know, I think focusing constantly also on the debate over whether a particular books ought to be taught to high school students, whether mm-hmm. you can read books by black authors, basically. I, I think there's a, a real focus by, what's his name with the bow tie? on Tucker uh, Carlson. <laughs> Tucker Carlson. Oh, yeah. We say Tucker Carlson. We actually say his real name. I think Tucker Carlson and others with their sneers are making it clear that the issues that really we think ought to motivate people that are really important to people's lives are not those that they're focusing on. They focus instead on these wedge issues that are part of the agenda of the right. But that's why they're so effective, because they are wedge issues, because people care about them. You know, we can sit around this table all the time and say how stupid people are, and why don't they pay attention to the real issues? But these issues pick themselves. So whether a kid should wear a mask in school, for example, becomes very important to a lot of mamas and papas who want to say, don't tell my kid to do anything, even though it may cost the kid his life or her life. 
So uh, we don't choose those issues, but somehow they come to the front. Critical race theory is actually the best example, isn't mm-hmm. it? Critical race theory is not taught in any elementary school in America. Yeah. But that is what Fox News talks well, about. Well, you may have seen a clip. They were interviewing a Virginia voter, and they asked him what he thought the most important issue of the Virginia race was, and he said education, and he specifically talked about the critical race theory. And so the announcer said to him, what is critical race theory? He says, I'm not sure what it is, but I don't like it. <laughs> That's basically what's exactly. going on. But That's I, all I'll they t- need to know. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you a statistic that jumped out at me, and I'm going to try to put a media spin on it. Nassau County, Long Island, had 260,000 votes cast. The last cycle, there were 700,000 votes. So that's 500,000 some odd people who voted the last time in the Trump race who didn't vote this time. Mm -hmm. Now, we can speculate on a number of reasons why that is, but I want to ask whether you think the media has any responsibility there in not driving people to vote. Yeah. I do think the media, I also think that the Democratic Party has some responsibility for not figuring out its message, for failing to get across the big bill in right. Washington. And of course, Trump wasn't running, and that motivated right. a lot of people the last time. But right. I, that's just a startling drop-off in voter turnout. It's hard for me to believe that Newsday or the cable news channel down there didn't cover the hell out of these elections. Nevertheless, many fewer people did not show up this time. Yeah, but it wasn't a presidential race. And before I could agree with you, Ira, I would need to go back and look at the statistics for the turnout of similar off-presidential year races, and maybe it's typical, maybe it's not atypical. Well, we know it's atypical. typical. Yes, we, so, you're exactly right. And so to say, oh, it's a big drop-off. Things that concern me, it talk about the messaging and where maybe the media can make a difference, even looking at New York State, where it's not easy to amend the New York State Constitution. Two legislatures have to do it, and then it goes to the voters. So they had proposals on the ballot that would affect the people's right to vote or how easy or difficult it is to vote, and they were defeated. So um, Defeated, by the way, and the Democratic Party spent not a dime yeah, they didn't even to support try to that the Republican so, Party pushed voting against it. Right. right. So whose quote-unquote fault is it that they went to the trouble and managed to get them on the ballot, and yet people didn't vote for them. Well, let me play devil's advocate. If that was a national issue, if these just propos- play the devil. <laughs> if those propositions were not just a New York City issue, but a national issue, and the Fox News crowd was against it, that's what we would hear every night on Fox News and on all the channels. Did we hear anything similarly, or should we have heard anything similarly from the quote-unquote left-wing media? They didn't push those issues. Now, again, this is not a national race, but I don't remember seeing or hearing very much at all about this before the election. And we're kind of re- Reactive. As Rex is saying, if the Democrats didn't spend money to promote it, that has an effect because if they were, then the media are reactive and we would be reporting on what they were claiming or saying. Maybe. 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 There's another way of looking at this. I read Proposition Number 1. It's confusing, uh, wasn't a it? A lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I had no idea about what was really going on. In fact, as a trained Ph.D. political science full professor, I have to tell you and admit to you, I didn't understand it all. I thought it was written in such a convoluted way that when I really paid attention to it, I saw some things in proposition number one, for example, that defied any kind of logical analysis because it was helpful to the incumbents. But you'd have to really look for that and understand why it was up there. And like Harry the Doorman, who I always quote, he said, when, the, when it's too confusing, just vote no. 
Well, as, as the salutatorian of the Voorheesville High School class That's of good. 1972, yeah, I'm uh, proud of you. I had to try harder. Uh, I went with the League of Women Voters recommendations because it... Uh, but the good government voted, groups were split. Common Cause, League of Women Voters, NYPIRG, and so on. But and I don't know how other So what did they say? They were, they were they against it. They were against it. League um, was against it. Smart. Well, interesting, but Nyberg was in favor of it. And some voters will take their cues from these interest groups. You know, you look at good government groups, goo-goos, as, uh, as we kind of shortchange it, yeah. and the goo-goos were split on Prop Who 1, not that? so much on, uh, well, reporters. <laughs> and, the, and the environmental proposition, which was the only one that passed, was so vague, it amazed me that it passed, because while everybody could say we're in favor of the environment or whatever the wording was, it didn't say anything about what were they talking about, what what do you have to do to, to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? It doesn't matter. doesn't matter because basically they said, are you in favor of clean air right. and, and clean who water? It? Who's voting against that right. these days? <laughs> well, anyway, there's a lot to sort out. And, and the responsibility of journalists when it comes to helping voters understand what they should be voting on, the irresponsibility of some outlets pumping up stories beyond what is, let's say, important in order to drive ratings. These are things that I think we're going to be talking about and having to deal with for years years to come. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. I'm Rex Smith here with Barbara Lombardo, Ira Fussfeld, and Alan Shartok, and we're always happy to hear from you. Media at WAMC.org is how you could have a hand in this. One of the things, by the way, that is a result of these election changes, which we have talked about here occasionally on this show, is federal legislation to help local journalism. And as matters get talked about further in Washington, as pressures rise after the election, a plan to include this in the big spending bill being debated in Washington. The Local Journalism Sustainability Act seems to be falling down. Just to explain what this is, this is a federal payroll tax credit that would help pay the salaries of local journalists for four years. It would apply to newspapers, local broadcast outlets, and digital startups. So that seems to be in some trouble. Alan, I think you're not so much a fan of this idea. No, I think it stinks. The reason is that as soon as you allow politicians to get their hands on anything, sooner or later they're going to say, okay, we don't like what you did last week, so now we're going to get rid of that. And now you've gotten fat and prosperous getting money from the government. So you're giving basically the politicians who are always at war with the press on one level or another, uh, you're just another tool. I have a problem with it for a different reason. And that is how do you determine which of the local news outlets are worthy of receiving the money? And when there are owners that are really cheaping out, they're wringing every penny out of their organization. Anything personal in any of this? No, No, not at all. I don't even know why you would ask that. So the, uh, yeah, so that concerns me of how do you determine the legitimacy? Well, isn't that true whenever there are tax credits for anything? I mean, we have tax credits for green energy, for example, and what kind of accountability is there for that? You know, Rex, I have to say this. You disappoint me. I was going to say disgust, but I thought it over in my own mind, and I said, don't say disgust because it's really not nice. But you disappoint me. You did me all that, that so quickly? You made that calculation? Yeah. That I work very fast. able for I somebody your age. And that, oh, <laughs> now, boy, that oh, is so mean. So we know that you have always felt that the tax revenues ought to be given to newspapers and others. So this act that got, you know, basically taken out also included the electronic media, which is fascinating. 
But I know what you're up to, Rex, and I know why you're doing it, because all these years you've argued that your products need that help. So what do you think about this? Elise Stefanik, the number yeah. three Republican in the House, has made it clear that if the Republicans take over the House, they will defund NPR. No more federal support for public broadcasting, specifically because public radio is hostile to her. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, it's interesting because she's really angrier, according to her statements, at North Country Public Radio than she is at WAMC, which disappoints me no end. Um, <laughs> you but, want her to be mad at you, too. Sure, of course. <laughs> but, but my idea here is, of course, she is going to be opposed to anything that she perceives as liberal media outside of her ballywick. She also doesn't even speak to the post-star of Glens Falls, which I don't think would traditionally be considered liberal media, but in her mind it is. Yeah. Well, well we've been talking media. about this for years, and I'm speaking for myself, not as a member of the WAMC board, but when George, Pataki, <laughs> when George Pataki came into office, he threatened to pull the funding for this station. And I remember Alan and I talking about it and saying, in effect, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will, if they want to take the money, take it. We're uncomfortable getting money from government sources to begin with because of all of the reasons reasons that Barb cited. To what extent are they going to be beholding to the content of the station? Now, the answer is none, but I don't want that specter on them. So similarly, I don't want the government's money for newspapers or for any other media outlet, mm. except it's now a lifeline. You know, you reach your hand out and sometimes you'll grab onto somebody who you wouldn't want to grab onto if he pulls you out of the quicksand. So I would be reluctant, but I would accept government money right now if it came to me. But I'd prefer not to have it. I don't want any part of it. We're independent. We should be independent. As you know, Ira, I have agreed with you on that issue for a long, long time. On the Pataki NPR issue. Yeah, yes. you know, let them take it. Uh, yeah. What it does is it motivates your donors to give you even more. Right. This station would raise more. the money in no time we would. to make the difference. We would. Up. But yes. there are a lot of other stations. Yes that would go under without that money. I'm of two minds about this because I agree with the traditional First Amendment concerns of keeping government and journalism separate and the independence that you speak about. But the fact is, the fate of local news is now in the hands of this because of the digital revolution, which has upended the marketplace for local media. You know, most of the hundreds of thousands, actually, of newspapers, for example, the local news outlets that have died in recent years are weeklies and not dailies. They're small papers that have been the lifeblood of these communities. I used to be the editor of a little tiny paper in Indiana where we ran the little social notes still of who was visiting who in Remington, Indiana. You know, you run all the honor rolls. This kind of local, local news, the hyper-local news, is going away. That's the fabric of the community that is being killed. And if we can't do a federal payroll tax credit to help support that, but we're doing federal payroll tax credits to help build solar panels, mm -hmm. and we're doing federal payroll tax credits for all kinds of industries. We even have oil depletion allowance. We help the oil companies when they exhaust the oil from their wells. Why can't we do it for these companies as well? Well, I'm going to take a real stab here. The rest of the panel will, of course, disagree with me, but two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> In other words, just because we give all of these tax credits to people who really shouldn't be getting them doesn't mean we should do wrong. Are you opposed to tax deductions for gifts to, say, the symphony and local not-for-profit theaters and that sort of thing? Those are tax credits. The gifts to WAMC are no, tax you, deductible. You know, Rex, it's you're always trying to trap me with these. <laughs> with the facts. They're not the facts. What they are are arguments that are made in hell. In where? Hell. <laughs> 
I'm from South Dakota. I resent that. <laughs> I didn't know this room had a name. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay, we've named the studio now, folks. What is the studio called? DJ. This is Studio DJ. It's now known as hell. Okay, here we are. <laughs> Only when we're in it. <laughs> Only when we're here. So, folks, we'd be interested in your thoughts about this. It's about a billion dollars, by the way, the way that this was set up in the $3.5 trillion, now $1.75 trillion spending bill. So that's 0.1% of the bill. But a it drop seems in like the bucket. Drop in Nobody the bucket. cares but us. What's a billion bucks? I guess that's true. Hey, some of you have been teachers. Barbara, are you teaching this semester at UAlbany? I am. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Dr. Shartok, is it true that you have a Ph.D., Alan? I, That's I believe funny. Yeah. Not so, only that, I have three extra honorary doctorates whoa. on top of my earned Ph.D. Whoa. I just thought I'd mention that to you. <laughs> I can spell Ph.D. <laughs> but let's see if you could do it according to AP style. We'll talk oh, about good. that later. Excellent point. Student journalists, it says here, are challenging the industry's traditional ethics. This is according to a piece that's been published by Pointer, which is a, a journalism think tank. A journalist the home of the Pointer Sisters. Who's... Uh, gone back to school to get a master's degree in journalism education, finds out that a lot of students are challenging the traditional notion of independence of journalists because they are a part of the community they're covering, and they believe that they should be able to write about things that they have a personal stake in, and they're finding that the separation of journalism truth-telling and advocacy is a hard line to keep. And I'll bet students do that all the time, right? That is a good issue. I'm glad you're raising it. Several other students in my class are writing for the Albany Student Press, and the Albany Student Press is in a transition from being a strictly independent operation at the school so that the administration doesn't have any say in what they do or don't do or how they're distributed to becoming a club so that they can get some you know, funding and that they're allowed to have an advisor on the faculty, which can have a lot of pluses, but it could also put them in a perilous situation if, as has happened in the past, the administration is not happy with something that they're publishing. When I have class, I'm going to bring this to talk about with the class and how they feel about whether they're on a fence because sometimes they're too close to what they have to cover or because they have something at stake. They might have a professor who's involved in something they're criticizing. Mm -hmm. Or do they feel like they need to be advocates? And how do you balance that? So my question would be, what does Orphan Annie and the Albany Student Press have to do with each other? That's a riddle. I don't know. Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> they both have characters in them called the Asp. You see, the Albany student press is Asp. And little often Annie, remember, she had a character in the I, strip. I'm not the aware Asp. of that. I was not aware of I that. I read Gandhi when I was you guys would pay more attention well, to the important. It's been a few decades since that was available to journalists. So <laughs> let, let, me make, let me make sure I understand this. So the concern is being raised here in this issue is that the student journalists are concerned concerned about writing or broadcasting material that might be offensive to people who they have to answer to, teachers and the like. Exactly. And so wouldn't we say to those teachers and the like, and those to the students, this is the academy. This is where you learn life's lessons. You learn skills that will help you in life if you go forward in a particular profession. And as it relates to the upper class, those who could look down and do damage to these students, they ought to be reminded, too, that these are students who are learning how to be newspaper people or radio people, and you have to give them space. They shouldn't be worried that they're going to get retribution from teachers or professors or advisors. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, let's remember. And then there's reality. Let's, exactly. <laughs> which which let's, part let's, is reality? Well, let's remember here that 
the assistant professor looking for tenure, who has been assigned to be the journalism uh, liaison to the paper, might have their own self-seeking needs in a fight like that. Barbara, you're making or a the university well, president, who the new yeah, student newspaper yeah, is yeah. making life miserable for right. by writing inaccurately, perhaps about and this, stuff. And this story they were referring to talks about high school journalists also, which I think does take, in some ways, an even higher level of courage because it's a smaller community and you're writing about people. And you're, you're more criticizing your coach, have... who might also be your yeah. teacher yeah. Yeah. You're or more your likely. friend's mother. This program is so old that we've been talking, Barbara, about that for years and years of the, <laughs> the, high, school, but, the high school journalism versus the college journalism. But the traditional ethics are old. I mean, the, the notion of independence and of journalists being mm -hmm. taught to pursue stories, notwithstanding whatever barriers they may find, including a recalcitrant administration or professors that may not like what you're writing, that is old. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Journalists, student journalists are now saying these standards of objectivity and neutrality to avoiding the perception of bias, that's outmoded. We need to recognize that journalism is a form of activism, and that's the kind of journalism they want to embrace. Although it always has been, and when you think about it, we are choosing what we're going to write about, how we're going to present it, what we're going to say, what we're not going to write about. And if it's an issue that we think needs to be addressed, we, the great whoever's running the media outlet, that's what gets coverage, and that is you know, hopefully what gets talked about. Maybe I'm doing you wrong here, Barbara, but that sounds like goo-goo talk to me, uh, meaning this is the way it should be as opposed to the way it is. I was only number two <laughs> at Boresville High School. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Try harder. I, I'm just trying to get my arms around this concern about retribution from faculty and staff. I mean, if a student newspaper reporter does a story about the principal of his or her high school smoking cigarettes in the boys' room during a break and he's not allowed to smoke in the building, that's a legitimate news story that should be reported, and the answer for the principal is not to seek retribution on the reporter, it's to stop smoking in the boys' room. And this is journalism, and this is what the kids are learning to do, and the adults in the room are supposed to give them the space to do it. That's goo-goo talk also. Well, it could be. This is actually why I think the Albany Student Press is becoming a club, because that way there can be a little bit more faculty control and quality control. And uh, maybe right? money. Well, and when I was the editor of the Oracle at SUNY New Paltz, we succeeded in getting rid of the faculty advice. I don't know whether they, they have since reinstated that. What was his name? Okay, forget uh, it. He, he's no longer alive, and I happen to like him a lot. Well, uh, one of my colleagues at UAlbany who is involved in the student paper has been really important to the newspaper in helping guide them, train them. So you learn a lot just by doing, but it sure helps to have somebody with some experience to help you get better. Says the editor. Okay. Hope Thank you're not you up for all. tenure. <laughs> <laughs> That's Barbara Lombardo, Ira Fussfeld, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks especially to our producer, Dave Agostina, for bringing up all these great issues that we've been arguing about. And thanks to you for listening to us this week on The Media Project. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, tingling-ling newspaper guild, got a free new world to build, meet the people, that's a thrill, all together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive 
editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>